My goal is really I want to be better by the end of the podcast. And so I feel like if I'm an improved person by the end of the podcast, then so are the listeners. Think about like all those hundreds of hours talking and researching peak performers. It's going to have an effect on how you live your life. And hopefully for the listeners as well, they'll get a sense of that too and it'll affect them. But I know for me, it's just changed the way I think about everything from food, nutrition, exercise, my relationships, a huge effect on my creativity, my spirituality and open-mindedness, because I've talked to people of every discipline and faith, my sense of what's important in business. I don't know, it's changed my life in every way. That's James Altucher, this week on The Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. How's it going? How are you feeling? Are you doing good? Are you ready to receive? I hope so. If so, you're in the right place because this is the show where I do my very best to share conversations that matter with the world's most compelling minds across a wide swath of categories, everything from health, wellness, nutrition, and fitness to environmentalism to creative expression and personal and professional development. My name is Rich Roll. This is a podcast. It's my podcast. Welcome aboard. Before we get into it, one quick housekeeping announcement. I am very excited to announce that Julie and I have a brand new cookbook coming out April 24th. It's called The Plant Power Way Italia. If you enjoyed our first cookbook, The Plant Power Way, then you are going to freak for this one because it is next level across the board. Super proud of it. We just revealed the cover the other day. It's absolutely gorgeous, really inspired by our experiences in the Italian countryside hosting these retreats. Uh, It's also packed with 125 never-before-seen delicious plant-based recipes. You guys are going to love it. And it would mean a great deal to me if you pre-ordered it now from your favorite online bookseller. For more information, you can check it out on my site or on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, wherever you buy books. And we're going to be doing some public events soon, or around the launch, I should say, and I'll keep you posted uh, as that schedule develops. So returning for his third appearance on the show is my friend James Altucher. Uh, You might recall our first conversation in the very early days of this program, episode 75, as well as episode 165, which was a roundtable conversation with James, myself, my wife, Julie, and his then wife, uh, Claudia. I've also been a guest on James's show, I think twice at this point, and you could check that out on his podcast, The James Altucher Show. So James, for those less familiar, is many things. Like, how do I describe him? This guy does so much. He is, first and foremost, a prodigiously talented writer. Uh, He's also a podcast host, an investor, a serial entrepreneur who has started and run over 20 companies. He is a former VC and hedge fund manager, as well as a chess master. He's basically just one of the smartest and, and most interesting intellects that I know. Uh, Somebody who is perhaps best known these days as really an inspiring thinker with very compelling and and often counterintuitive ideas on everything from college, he says, don't go, to career, create your own, to creativity. He starts each day by writing down 10 ideas on a waiter's pad, to money. He's a guy who's made millions and lost millions several times over. But I think what makes James most interesting to me personally is, first and foremost, his 
incredible creative output. This is a guy who writes every single day, churning out insightful blog posts with incredible regularity. And somebody who's authored, I don't know how many books at this point, but I think 18 books. Uh, if you haven't read any of his books, I suggest starting with my favorite amongst them called Choose Yourself, which was a Wall Street Journal bestseller and a book that hit number one on Amazon upon its release, which is amazing. Also, you know, James is somebody who has this capacity, this deep willingness to be incredibly honest and vulnerable in his writing. He literally turns himself inside out. And I find that laudable. And I think it makes his message so relatable and compelling. Also, uh, I like the fact that he puts his thought experiments into action, like his exploration with minimalism, where he gave away all of his possessions, save what he could fit in a single duffel bag and ended up living out of Airbnbs for, I think, two years. And that was a story that was chronicled on the front page of the Sunday New York Times uh, style section. I'll put a link in the show notes to that. You should read it. It's a great article. In any event, James is ubiquitous on the Internet and his writing has appeared in major media outlets, including The Wall Street Journal, The New York Observer, TechCrunch, The Financial Times, Yahoo Finance and others. Uh, his blog, jamesaltucher.com, has attracted more than 20 million readers since its launch in 2010. This conversation is super fun, and there's a few more things I want to say about it and James before we dig in. But first... We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built-to-move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in Fleetfoot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is gonna be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fair trade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic fair trade cotton, birch mattresses are made with 
None of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on birch for about five years. And I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive. And the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by Seed. Gut health is all the rage. There's good reason for that. I've probably devoted, I don't know, at least a dozen episodes of this podcast to the many, many crucial ways the microbiome contributes to your overall well-being or lack thereof, and to the many diet and lifestyle protocols we should all adopt to promote gut health, from fermented food to fiber and everything in between, including, of course, the importance of supplementing with a probiotic. And the one that I have come to trust far beyond the shenanigans of the supplement world is Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. It's the most solid, science-based, and rigorously evidence-backed probiotic and prebiotic on the market. Formulated for optimal digestion, gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, skin health. In fact, my 16-year-old daughter has been using it to clear up a significant acne issue, and it's been wonderful, as well as many other systemic benefits. Like I said, I've been taking it daily, personally, for years. I love it. My body loves it. And right now, for our listener community, Seed is offering 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Visit seed.com slash richroll and use the code richroll25 to redeem this offer. That's seed.com slash richroll or code richroll25. Okay, James Altucher. Someone I consider a peer, a friend, a mentor of sorts, and just a fascinating person at large. Uh, James is somebody I could literally talk to all day about anything. I could listen to him read the phone book. And <laughs> not that we're doing that today, because this is a fairly wide-ranging, sort of agenda-free conversation about a wide variety of subjects, everything from minimalism to education to life transformation to Bitcoin, <laughs> which... I should say, was uh, a conversation recorded prior to the more recent market adjustments, uh, just so you know. In any event, and that being said, I sincerely hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. So without further ado, I give you James Altucher. So I do the, uh, I do the intro stuff later, so we can just go right into it. Yeah. By the way, can we keep that, what you just said? Of course, we can keep that in. I, I, I do no editing, James. Yeah, I, I prefer that. So uh, so great to uh, see you again. Yeah, it's, uh, I think the first time we did a podcast together, before anyone even knows my name here, was I think it was in 2014, early 2014, and it was on the phone or Skype. Yeah, I think that was back when I was doing Skype interviews. And yeah, we did that. we did that one by Skype. Then I think we did one in person, or we did one we did with both you and Julie. I know I we did that. Yeah, I know we did that. But I think I think I did yours. But was that in person? 
It might have been. We've yeah. done this three three times, maybe four times. Yeah. I don't know. I can't remember. But it's been a while. It's been like a year and a half or it's something. It's been a year like and a half. Yeah. Then. And I'll so, tell you why it's been a year and a half. But introduce me first. <laughs> like I said, I do the intros before, so I will do this beautiful introduction oh, okay. about you and your life beforehand. Well, I owe you an apology. Why? Because last time we got together, we were talking about different ways to work together, and I know there was a phone call. Um, you you talk to somebody I work with and it, and we didn't quite figure out a way or I, I you know what happened I ended up selling a piece of my business something else so I got distracted uh-huh. and I never really followed up with you so I feel like I owe you an, uh, an apology on that I feel bad no no apology necessary uh, yeah we did have we had a meeting about a potential business thing and then I talked to one of your guys about a thing and somehow it kind of fell off the radar and there wasn't a lot of follow up and I've learned. In my experience, I don't get caught up in these sorts of things. I just feel like if these things are supposed to happen, they happen relatively seamlessly. And if it's a situation in which you feel like you have to force things to move forward, then it probably isn't the right uh, repository of your energy anyway. So like, I just thought, well, the timing's wrong on this or whatever, James is doing other things. And if this is supposed to happen, it will. And if it if it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't. And we're the, sitting here talking today. There was like a layer of things that happened that had nothing to do with what we were talking about. And then I just, I just felt bad, <laughs> which is like well, a typical way I kind of lose touch with people, but I'm glad we got back in touch and we're, and we're sitting here. Let me alleviate you of any guilt, James. Good, it's thank you. Good. So no, I'm delighted to be talking to you today. Um, I'm glad you responded to my email, which is why we're here, which is cool. Yeah, because we had... Um, you had Lance Armstrong, I had Floyd Landis, same day. The same day. I just, I couldn't believe it. It's it's even more bizarre because Floyd Landis is such an unlikely guest for you, for your show. Yeah. And I was like, I can't believe Floyd's going to be is on Yeah, like it makes today. more sense for you to have Lance yeah. Armstrong than for me to have Floyd Landis, who just in case people don't know, kind of quote unquote won the 2006 Tour de France the year after Lance Armstrong stopped winning them. And then several years later was the whistleblower on on Lance Armstrong in terms of the whole doping scandal. Right, I thought you did a great job with that interview, especially as somebody who who probably doesn't know that much about cycling. I, I don't know anything very, about cycling yeah, it was at very, all. It was super interesting. And I thought Floyd was very articulate and well-spoken on the pertinent issues. Yeah, and I, I didn't want to be... With all those types of things, because I don't know the the emotional battles that maybe might have occurred historically, you know, they've known each other for 20 years or, or, or you know, around that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I want to make sure I'm as balanced as possible in those interviews while still, I mean, F- Floyd was, was nice. He was on the podcast and I wanted to get the story. But, you know, I understand always there's, there's always more than one side to any story. I think that was my approach with Lance as well. It was something I said to him before the interview, and I believe I even said it in the, in the introduction, which was that I don't have an ax to grind or an agenda. Like, I'm just interested, you know? Like, I'm just, I'm interested in the story, and I approach these conversations from a place of no judgment or, you know, to the closest extent possible to have no judgment, just pure, like, curiosity. Yeah, and, and to get any, ins- I think, I think, our podcasts are about similar topics and we maybe approach it from slightly different angles, but I think both are about how do you achieve peak or better, or at least better performance in life? And we talked to a lot of peak performers. So here are two guys who have reached the top of the 
world, particularly Lance Armstrong, but also Floyd Landis to an extent, they reach the top of the world in, in this incredibly competitive sport, cycling, sport I know nothing about and have no interest at all in. Right. But there was also this news-like aspect to the to the story as well. And But I wanted to get a little insight too into how do you become the, the best in the world at something? And I've, I, I think we both talked to a lot of people who are the best in the world at what they do. Mm. Yeah, we were talking a little bit about uh, about this before the podcast, and uh, and one of the things I said to you is that you know my approach is always to try to get to the emotional heart of it, and that that's like my priority that that has to come before the information. Uh, and we yeah. were kind of talking about like what makes a good podcast and why a lot of podcasts aren't good, and and the idea that like most people who are conducting these conversations. Like they're not listening, they're not present for what's happening. Or, or they don't have a sense of what the heart of the story is. Like everybody's got kind of a little bit of the arc of the hero in them and they're at some point on that journey. And when you're interviewing someone, you kind of have to make sure you're on the arc a little bit. You're not off arc. You're not both talking mm-hmm. about something that is completely unrelated to that person's journey in life. And so I think that's how you get that emotional connection. And so when you're, getting ready to speak to somebody for your show like what what is your process of preparation and what are you trying like what's your approach like your overall kind of um perspective on how to like crack somebody open well and and that's an interesting phrase like crack somebody open uh it's not like i'm trying to to necessarily break them because my goal is really i want to be better by the end of the podcast and so i feel like if i'm if i'm an improved person by the end of the podcast, and so are the listeners. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll usually, I'll try to read everything they've done. I'll try to listen to maybe other podcasts they've been on or that they've been doing. I'll, if they've done a TED Talk recently, I'll listen to that. Uh, if they've written stuff recently, I'll, I'll, I'll read read that, uh, like, like articles or things. Um, and then I'll just in general think about what is this person's real story? So there's always the story they write and tell, and then there's the real story. And the, the story they write and tell is not a, necessarily a bad story, it's not a lie. I always say there's the good story and the real story. Uh-huh. So the good story is not a lie, it's a good story, but then I also wanna find out, I wanna think about what's the real story is and, and get them talking about that a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that's how you get the most impact give them a little bit of their good story and then try to get the the real story and when you're thinking about who to have on what are your criteria for selecting the people that you choose to talk to so this is this has changed over time but i'm really interested in someone who actually does does the things they 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 do peak performance so they they've experienced it they do it they don't just write about it so it's very easy for instance, I could write a book. Here's what every quarterback in the NFL has in common. And if and if you do this, maybe you know it's interesting, and maybe you'll be a better athlete. And meanwhile, I don't know anything about the NFL or quarterbacks or athletics or anything. And uh, so it's it's very easy for me to write like fancy sports stories just with a little bit of research. But it'd be useless for me to talk about it on a podcast. You wouldn't really learn anything. The listeners wouldn't really gain from that, and they probably wouldn't gain from me writing a book about that either, but I could probably write that book. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I originally had, would have best-selling authors if I couldn't get the doers. And I realized very quickly the best-selling authors don't necessarily do what their books are about. 
And so I'm more interested in people who have earned the right to write their story, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in your case, you experienced these life changes, this, this reinvention in your life that led to, you know, your, your ultra marathons and, and, every, and everything else that's happening in your life. And you wrote about it. So that's an example of a writer that I would be interested in. Whereas if someone just says, okay, I have a PhD in, I don't know, uh, uh, psychopaths, uh, and Can here's all these academic PhD? studies. Hmm? Can you get that PhD? Probably. <laughs> Somewhere, right? So, and look, there are probably very good, uh, uh, like, I, I, again, with someone like that, I'd want to know, okay, what's their experience, what's their actual personal experience with psychopaths? Are they therapists that have cured this or helped people deal with psychopaths? Uh-huh. So I want to know the doing and not the academic studies. Right. You'd, you'd rather, like, talk to Clarice, who, like, w- actually worked with... Uh, you know, Clarice from uh, Silence of the Lambs. Yes, exactly. was actually exactly. in that position, like dealing with the psychopath firsthand. Yeah, so so for instance- In a high performance way. Yeah, so so for instance, <laughs> in, the, in that sense, because you made me think of the FBI just there, uh, I did have someone who was like uh, a high level uh, three initial agency sort of person and knew an extreme amount about the hacking that is occurring in the world right now mm-hmm. for very good reasons he knew about it. Uh, we distorted his voice and we did a podcast about wow. it because he he doesn't just, there's a lot of people who write about the hacking world who I can, I can read the book. I have a technology background so I can read the books and I can tell these people don't actually know anything. Here's someone I could talk to who knows and is actually a peak performer in the hacking world mm-hmm. and knows what's happening throughout the planet in it. And I can learn from it too. Like what did it take for him to get that good and to be that involved. And then also it can help on a news aspect, what what's really fake news and what's real and what are concerns and what are not. And then I learn and the listeners learn and so on. Yeah, But there are plenty cool. of people who write books about it who know nothing. Right. Well, you're very good at the podcast. I Thank always you. love enjoying, you know, I always enjoy listening to it. And uh, it, it's been cool just over the last couple of weeks to see you've ha- who you've had on, because in addition to Floyd Lannis, you had Anthony Irvin on, who's my friend, who I had on my show as well. And I was like, that's another one where I was like, I wouldn't have, call- I wouldn't have expected James to have Anthony on, but his story is so amazing. And I was so delighted that you had him on. And then- um, I, I, I think I did a, a good job with him. I, I have to listen to your podcast with him. I, since you're friends with him, I'm sure yours was actually much better well, the one that we him. had was before the Olympics, so it was before he won yeah. this latest gold. Um, it's probably a little bit longer, but uh, yeah, check it out. See, and there, like and there is an intriguing thing. It's like he didn't just like go all out as a kid, was talented, had great coaches, win a gold, and then move on to the next part of his life. He like stopped in this sport for 16 years. He's, he broke the record for the, the longest time span between mm-hmm. winning a gold, uh, two different gold medals. I mean, he's re- overall, I think he won four or five, but th- th- he broke that record. And it's just a fascinating story to me. How do you get that level of peak performance back up? Um, yeah, and in between that period of time, it's not like he was swimming the whole time. Right, he, he was having City, a lot of trouble. He was in a band. He was like, he went down a dark rabbit hole for a while and, you know, the, traveled the world, did all kinds of crazy stuff, started smoking cigarettes. Like, it's just the arc of, like, what transpired in between those Olympic victories is really quite staggering. Because I think in addition to peak performance, if someone is a doer rather than a writer, that's, that they have a story. So there's, I like a writer, unless I'm talking about their process of writing, there's not the story. They've written other stories. Mm-hmm. I want to hear from 
Anthony Irvin in this case, what was that story between those two gold medals as opposed to, you know, I don't know, any number of other guests I could have had. Like his story in, intrigued me. Mm-hmm. But you're right, I had, um, I've had more, not that I f- focus on this, but for the first time ever, I've had more sports figures on just because I've, I've recently hired a, um, a full-time podcast producer who uh, is fascinated with He's sports. A big sports guy. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> so I had on Bill Cartwright, I had on Anthony Irvin, I've had on um, Floyd Landis, all these people I've never heard their name before even. And uh, it's been great because it's, you know, those are definitely peak performers, all those sports figures, and I've learned a lot. I like this idea of, of being interested in doers. My experience is that athletes are inherently doers because that's what they do. They do. They don't, they're not writing about it. They're actually physically moving their bodies. That's technically doing, right? Um, but sometimes if you're too much of a doer, then you're less reflective about the doing. And I've had sometimes it's tricky doing having conversations with athletes because they're so immersed in a subculture um, as opposed to somebody who's in a more in, you know sort of intellectual pursuit who's has a little bit more reflective ability or capacity. I, I think that's right. I think I think that's why I haven't had as many athletes on the podcast like, I remember, and it also depends when they became, when they started to become aware of their superior performance, how old they were. So, like, for instance, having Tony Hawk on was very complicated because practically from birth, that guy was doing, you know, flips on his skateboard. Right. So, if you ask him, like, how do you do that? He, he, he couldn't, he can't tell you that any more than how he tells you how he digests food. Right. It's like, it's like, I wouldn't have. Brad Pitt on and ask him how do you pick up girls because <laughs> that would be a useless podcast. Uh-huh. There would be like zero actual information you can get out of that, even <laughs> though he might be the world champion of like meeting girls or I should call women. Sorry. So what has this podcast, you know, journey meant to you? Like, cause we've been on similar arcs. You started yours, you know, around the same time that I started mine. Yeah, probably. Uh-huh. I, I started mine probably like late Q3 2013 I started building a backlog and then I launched on January 2nd 2014 you were in 2012 Mm -hmm. so you were a little before mine Um, I do I I think I probably caught up on hours just because I do three a week right now yeah I don't Um, know how you do that I don't know either we'll we'll see we'll see but I I love doing it though Uh, it's like you were saying um, it's almost like this amazing. It's almost like a scam that we get to do this because we get to. I get to call up anybody in the world. I mean, I get to call up my my childhood heroes. Even like I called up Judy Bloom, who I read every single one of her books when I was a kid. <laughs> and somehow, who would have thought when I was in fourth and fifth grade, reading tales of a fourth grade nothing, that one day I was going to actually talk to this amazing woman who sold 150 million copies of her books most of them to me mm-hmm. when I was a kid and my friends. So that's it's just crazy, one example right? of and then you get to And then you get to share that with all kinds of people who appreciate, you know, appreciate it. Yeah. It's really, it's really been uh, enriching to my life in countless ways. Like I can't, I, it's like, I almost can't imagine not having or, or not having done it, what my life would be like. Well, think about like all those hundreds of hours talking and researching peak performers. It's going to have an effect on how you live your life. And hopefully for the listeners as well, they'll they'll get a sense of that too, and it'll affect them. But I know for me, it's just changed the way I think about everything from f- from food, nutrition, um, exercise, my relationships, 
my creativity, a huge effect on, on my creativity, my spirituality and open-mindedness, because I've talked to people of every discipline and faith, um, and business, my, my, my sense of what's important in business. Uh, I don't know, it's changed my life probably in every, in every way. And I don't think even people realize that because from day, it's sort of like when you're growing, you don't, people don't see, oh, he grew a micrometer. Mm-hmm. But like every day I feel it changes me. And, you know, I, I don't know if people around me know it, but, but it does. People ask me, what is the information that you've really, you know, leveraged from your guests and put into work in your own life? And what have you discarded? And I don't ever have like a really good answer for that because it's not like I make a list and it's just sort of an osmosis sort of thing. And these things just tend to percolate into my life almost without effort. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think I think it some aspects of it because it's not like it's not like you're going to become an Olympic swimmer, right? By after do, doing a podcast with Anthony Irvin, but some aspect of his discipline, his work ethic, how he gets through his trials and and problems that you know, you listen to him and hear someone who was the best in the world for, at what he did and does and some aspect of that it can't help but uh, filter in. Yeah, I think it's it's a, it's almost an unconscious thing with me. It's not like, well, I run up against a problem and I go, well, remember when so-and-so on the podcast said this is how he or she handles this problem? It's not like that. It's just, it's there swimming around in your, in your unconscious mind. And I think it just impacts your behavior and, and how you perceive the world. I'll tell you one thing though, which might be more concrete. Well, a couple of things. One is if you give me a category, I can tell you how the podcast probably mm-hmm. helped me on that category. Um, and I would say there's a couple of things that are probably common among everybody, but the most important being, um, in, in addition to, to, to basic health, but the most important being the quality of the people they surround themselves with is extreme. I notice that's always extremely important. Like who, who you're with, who you're you're uh, romantically with, like who's your life partner, who your friends are, who your business associates are, who your coaches are, that makes or breaks people. And it makes or breaks peak performance, it makes or breaks businesses, uh, that's extremely important. And my circle has been improved by the podcast because a lot of the people that I've had on, they become part of my life. They become, you know, mentors to me and friends and people that I can call on, which has been this incredible benefit of that. Because other than other than like my family, like this is my social interaction. Like yeah. me spending time with you today, like this is my big social event for the day. It just happens to be professional as well. Well that's just but if we had gone out to lunch you know, we would, we're having a, a a higher caliber exchange and conversation than we would be if we just went and hung out for a while. Yeah, I I think that's true. Like it's the same thing for me because let's say some weeks I'm recording up to six podcasts a week, not releasing but recording, and I don't have time for any social life after that. So it really does be. And now this is the fourth or fifth time we've been on a podcast together. That's more. This is the you know, sum total of our friendship, though. <laughs> but 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 if you think about it, that I mean, I think. We, we've hung out twice outside the podcast. Um, one time at Pure Foods and Wine, one mm-hmm. time at, my, at an apartment I was staying at uh, around the corner from here. But um, uh, most people in their our age don't really hang out with their adult friends, you know, 
it's not like you go over to each other's house and like yeah. ride a bicycle around like we're adults now we do lots of different things so this is really my social life is is the podcast and then you know the one or two other activities I do in life right so so let's get into let's get into some of those activities uh, you know I kind of see you you're a very interesting dude because you're kind of category defying I see you as sort of this pontificator at large on all manner of subjects and and ideas uh, but but the word pontification is interesting because I don't want to make it seem like I'm closed-minded in the sense that I have a strong opinions but I'm always I'm always open-minded to the the opposite side I'm never I'm never dogmatic mm-hmm. even on Does pontificating where imply that I didn't mean to imply that uh, it's not like I'm on a pedestal preaching. Right, yeah. I got you. So, because uh-huh. uh, if people disagree with me, I'm going to listen. Like, for instance, I don't think in general most 18-year-olds should go to college. But I haven't, uh, and everybody would always ask me for years. I first said this 12 years ago. I wrote this in a column in the Financial Times. And 12 years ago, everybody, 100% of people thought I was crazy. Now it's more of a discussion that you see in the media. And yet, I have an 18-year-old daughter. She really wanted to go to college. She really did not want to have the discussion at all. Like, I would bring it up with her. She would literally turn around and walk away from me. I like that your daughter is rebelling against you by going to college. It's true. And 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 the thing is, turning away, turning around and walking away from me told me I wasn't really being a good father. Instead, she should have been comfortable expressing her opinion with me and arguing about it or debating it, not arguing, but debating it with me. And so the conversation then would be, I would have to rush after her. Don't, you know, turn your back on me. But here's what we'll do. I'll give you in cash the tuition for your next year. All you've got to do is watch a movie a day with me and then we talk about it for like 20 minutes afterwards and then you can go off and do whatever you want. And I'll give you that cash that I would have spent in college. And she did say, I'll think about it. But then she said, I really want to go to college. Hmm. But the whole interaction made me think, you know what? The fact that she felt she had to not talk to me about it, that she had to walk away, made me think I wasn't being open-minded enough so that she felt comfortable having the conversation. Mm -hmm. And so since then, we've been able to have the conversation in a more in a nicer way. So does that, are you saying sort of between the lines there, what I'm getting out of that is, I mean, you're, you're somebody with a very large personality. You're very charismatic. And do you feel like that was, that overwhelmed her or made her feel like she couldn't communicate with you openly and honestly without reprisal or? Yeah, I think she felt like she couldn't communicate with me honestly, like that I was too single-minded about it, Mm -hmm. which I was. I mean, I even wrote a book you're the guy like yeah. you can't you can't walk, backtrack from this position right i wrote a book 40 alternatives to college and i <laughs> and i've written like a ton of articles about it so uh i think she felt i couldn't she couldn't have the conversation now it's really gratifying to me when i, I had to think about my parenting style and i always got along with them we never would yell but uh it's gratifying to me that both my kids could have the conversation with me when they disagree with me mm-hmm. and that shows me that that they feel comfortable having an adult conversation as they become adults. They should be able to have an adult conversation with the closest adult, one of the closest adults to them, which is their father. Right. Fatherhood's more important to me than winning an argument. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. 
I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem. A problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life and recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. This sort of counterintuitive idea that that college is overrated, people shouldn't go to college, most people shouldn't go to college, et cetera, is one of those counterculture notions that has sort of put you on the zeitgeist map as somebody with a with an opinion. Um, and you have a couple other ones like this. I mean, Choose Yourself is all about, you know, sort of uh, rethinking the job market and, and, and what it means to be a professional. And now you've kind of dipped your toe into, into cryptocurrency and you're sharing some thoughts about that that are, it seems like they're ruffling some feathers also. Like you have this idea that Bitcoin could go to a million dollars. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's funny the whole cryptocurrency thing because 
I really spent a long time, people say to me, oh, it's like out of nowhere you're talking about this. Actually, I was probably the first person on CNBC ever to talk about Bitcoin in 2013 when I first published Choose Yourself, which I did in a very choose yourself fashion. I self-published it rather mm -hmm. than the whole idea of choosing yourself, which I still strongly believe in and always will, is that don't wait for the gatekeepers to choose you. If you want to write a book and you're waiting for some big publisher to say, here's your big book deal, you're probably making a mistake. Like you probably should look at how you can do this yourself and put your best effort into it and create something magical than waiting for someone to allow you to do something magical. And so in order to, part of it, part of it for me was, okay, I liked the idea of Bitcoin back then. And so I created on my own a store that so a month before I released the book, Choose Yourself, I created a, a Bitcoin only store, probably the first Bitcoin only store ever created. And I sold Choose Yourself on it. Mm -hmm. And what was funny was I had quite a few people buy Choose Yourself with Bitcoin. Almost all of them were employees of Amazon. Oh, really? <laughs> so it was wow. interesting to me. But, but then I went on CNBC to talk about it because no one really had talked about Bitcoin on CNBC at this point. And Bitcoin was only 60 bucks. Now it's like 11,000. And I remember Herb Greenberg said to me, he was an anchor on CNBC. And he said, did you only do this for marketing purposes? And I said, well, um, on national television right now. So you tell me. <laughs> and so of course it was partly right. for marketing. It's not like I'm going to make sell a, a million books through Bitcoin, but um, but it gave me a lot of ex experience with Bitcoin and, and exposure to it and, and knowledge about it. And and now I can say, uh, here's proof. Back in 2013, mm -hmm. I was following this. You and I'm talking a, about it then. Yeah, talking about it then and seeing what was interesting about it. It's interesting how these trends work. Like six months ago, the average consumer wasn't really thinking about or talking about Bitcoin very much. And then as it started to inch up and inch up, as we progressed towards Thanksgiving, suddenly it was everybody's talking about it. It's everywhere. And as somebody who's kind of looked at it from an arm's length for a while, I first bought Bitcoin and it was like maybe two and a half years ago and I was broke and I sold it all and I thought it was all gone. And then I realized I still have 0.3 of a Bitcoin. So I was very excited about that. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> hold on to it. But yeah, I'm going to hold on to it. But then I started talking to some friends who know a lot about this stuff and I have yet to find anybody who can, who can really explain what is happening in digestible layperson's terms because well, it all gets to like oh it's where they start talking about the fork and these different camps and all this i was like i don't care i don't so, care about any of that so if you want i can i can explain it in layman's terms because i agree with you um that it shouldn't be explained ever in technology terms um but i want to say the, the reason why i started talking about it was because i saw that many of my kind of readers and listeners, A, they were asking about it because the move was so hyperbolic uh, up, you know, like since Thanksgiving, since October mm -hmm. or September. But also I saw there are so many scams out there in every possible, just like any kind of new financial thing, there's going to be 95% of that world is going to be scam. And I wanted to do something for my readers that was not a scam. Now, and it's very complicated when you do that, because then all the everybody who is doing a scam is saying, "No, you're you're the scam." Yeah. So there's a lot of things, but I, I, what I what I do to combat that a little bit is 
99% of what I say about Bitcoin, I'll say absolutely for free. So people could then judge whether I know anything or not. And then, um, you know, I might have a book or I hire someone to help me do more research. And then you have to start, if you build a business, it's a business, you start charging for stuff. But most of what I say and, and write about Bitcoin, I write completely for, for free. Mm -hmm. But because uh, I was interested in telling people, hey, this is what it's really about. You know, ignore the speculation. Try to ignore the bubble-like aspects of it right now. And this is the long game that's that's happening. And so, if you want, I could. I I feel like cryptocurrencies actually is a very small part of my life right now. But no, I don't want, want to go too into the weeds on I, it. But, but I know that you have like because I get like twenty emails from you a day from all your, oh, yeah. your email stuff. Like, I, have, I don't I'm, even know how you have time to write all this stuff. I, but. And and I don't and I don't all the sales stuff. I have a company that uh -huh. does that stuff. Um, but I know that you have this thing where you can teach people about Bitcoin. And hmm. I, I think the broader issue is that there is there is a need for somebody who can translate the principles in a way that the average consumer can comprehend and understand uh, the, what's important. Important to know about it without yeah. getting stuck in the weeds about what blockchain is and all of that. So, so <clears> let, let me, but, let, I can explain it in, in, right, I'll, we'll I do that quick. in less yeah. than five minutes. <laughs> but, but, but the reason why it's so important to explain it in a non technological way is if you ask people what's Amazon, nobody ever will say Amazon is a software application built on top of the TCP IP protocol, which is actually what Amazon is. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> they say Amazon's a store. And you could buy books, and then you suddenly you could buy other things there. You could uh -huh. buy everything there, and so it's I don't know what their slogan. Or is. talking about like, well, what is the, what is the dollar, and getting into like the you know it being gold backed and all of that, right? Yeah. So 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 I have I, I have two very simple ways that I explain why this is happening. I mean, part of what's happening now is a little bit speculation, um, but I could explain why that speculation is happening as well. But um, I have I have kind of like a history of money way, and I have an evolutionary way. So I'll start with the I'll do the evolutionary way. So if you look at every single industry, let's take like medicine. Medicine. If you got sick a thousand years ago, you would think maybe I need to pray to God or go to my shaman, uh, or or maybe I sinned, so God afflicted me with some illness that I don't quite understand. You would you would have some theistic you know, God-based way of understanding your illness. So we sort of uh, we sort of evolved from theism to humanism when humans became experts, they became doctors. Mm -hmm. So n instead of praying to God to cure your illness, you'd go to a doctor and he would, you know, put a, what do you call it, a stethoscope or whatever on your chest and make you cough and hit your knee with a hammer. And I, I haven't been to a doctor since right. I was 18, so this is why I'm very, this is like, I'm do thinking- Do they still what, do that? Yeah. yeah. I'm thinking about how, when I last went to a doctor it was my pediatrician, so I haven't been to a doctor since, which is probably a mistake. Right. Uh, but um, we kind of went from theism to humanism uh, in medicine when we went from praying to God to cure us to having a doctor cure us. And- now, when we go, when something's wrong, when we go to the doctor, maybe the first thing we do is we get an EEG or a CAT scan or some kind of heart test. I don't. What do you call the heart test? I don't know. Uh, EKG. EKG. Yeah. Um, or they'll look at you know if they're very sophisticated, they look at genetic data and they'll look at your DNA. And so there's all sorts of data that is now better used in medicine to die for their better data is better than humans at diagnosing mm -hmm. serious illness and even prescribing 
because they could, you know, people with this kind of data used this medicine and got cured. So, so we've gone from theism to humanism to dataism in medicine. Same thing if you look at even, I don't know, like war. Uh, two countries were going to war 2,000 years ago. They would pray to their gods. They would have sacrifices. And whosoever god was more powerful, that would be the winner, supposedly. Then it's whoever had more humans on the ground and more bullets, like you know World War II in Europe. If you had more humans on the ground, then you would win. So we went from theism to humanism. Now, every single day, the, there's a war being fought every day with data. Like I could tell you every company in, in the Fortune 500 in America and probably in every other country is being attacked constantly by for, forces in other countries and, and other institutions that we don't understand. I mean, the, um, there's a nonstop problem right now in Eastern Europe the electric grids of almost every Eastern European country is being attacked every day because wow. they're built on technology that was made before cybersecurity became important. Mm -hmm. So these just it's just a nonstop battle like in Poland or the Ukraine, how to keep their electric grid up when hackers are constantly 24 hours a day attacking them. And so we've gone to dataism to, again, from theism to humanism to dataism to fight our wars. So with money, you look at the dollar bill, if there's, you know, money is only as good as whether you could trust it enough to take care of your, your transactions and store your wealth there. So you do two things with money. You buy a cup of coffee. We both have a cup of coffee in front of us. And you also store wealth in a bank as you save money. And so uh, money has to be good for that. And you have to trust that the financial system will help you do that. So... With, you look at the dollar bill, it's got In God We Trust, which kind of is a, a relic of our theism background. Mm -hmm. Then you have a picture of George Washington, and maybe you have uh, the Washington, I don't know, memorial or whatever, or you have people signing the Declaration of Independence, or you have the Tr Secretary of Treasury has his signature on there. None of these things mean anything. It's just on a piece of paper, but we trust we trusted enough. Okay, this comes from the U.S. government. It's signed. It's got George Washington on it. It's got that pyramid with an eye on it, just in case you're into that. <laughs> so there's all these ways we get to trust the dollar. Well, okay, now we're going to go from in God we trust to eventually uh, a dollar that is uh, more data-based because then you could avoid problems like uh, forgery. So it's, it's, you know, there's $200 million worth of forged uh, currency in the United States. There's no forgery in, in you know, Bitcoin. So, so every type of, every new generation of currency, like like barter to gold to, to paper money to Bitcoin, solves the problems of the old generation. So paper money is lighter than gold and could be put in a bank and moved around electronically. Uh, gold was better than barter because you can put you know do everything in a gold transaction and now bitcoin solves the problem of uh forgery it solves the problem of double spending it solves the problem of if i want to give you money i don't have to go from my bank to the local reserve bank through the federal reserve to the wire system to your bank to your local reserve bank I could just send you money, and, and it nobody knows any international currency fluctuations. Yeah, we, we it, it solves all. If I if you're in China and I'm here, it solves all the whole international wiring system we bypass. Also, it's anonymous. So if I send you money now, cash money, I everybody in between knows, and everybody 
and believe me, there's a lot of institutions who keep track of all those transactions um, from the IRS to the FBI. Also, uh, there's fees. My bank has a fee. The local reserve bank has a fee. Your bank has a fee. There's fees. It's like inflation built into any tra uh, transaction. American Express has fees. With Bitcoin, fees can be kept to a minimum. And some Bitcoin transactions have, or some cryptocurrency transactions have no fees. There's anonymity. So there's all these huge problems backed by a, a thousand man years of science, which we don't even have to talk about. But there's all these huge problems that a database currency solves that paper money doesn't solve. Mm -hmm. And the anonymous thing is actually really important. So if you're the US government and you wanna buy, you wanna sell $80 million worth of weapons to warlords in Afghanistan, ah, do you really wanna send that through the international wiring system and, and now China and Russia and everyone else knows what you just did? No, you have to figure out some secretive way to do it. So no matter what the US government or other officials say uh, officially, the U.S. government and the Chinese government and the Russian government, they're fully behind the development of these cryptocurrencies. I mean, not that they're behind it at the root, but they're supportive of it. Because they can use it for their own nefarious purposes as yeah. needed. Who uses the dark web? So the dark web we th always think is used by uh, porn stuff or, or drug trafficking or whatever. But the U.S. government and other governments are probably the biggest users of kind of the parts of the web that are much more secretive. In what way? I, I didn't know that. Yeah, for like information, how do you send information to people abroad that you wouldn't necessarily want to, to send, you know, on your government website or, or through email, which can be easily hacked, or you don't know if it's going to be hacked or not. So, uh, or how do you, I don't know, again, fund, fund people who you don't necessarily want uh, other countries to know you're funding oh, right. massive transactions that, abroad. Did you learn some of this from the FBI guy that you had on the podcast? Yeah, from several. From yeah. Well, not only from him, but actually, so I'm involved in a lot of different cryptocurrency-related companies, and you know, I see the type of meetings they have and who they're talking to, and you know, it's very interesting. I always hear later, oh, you had this kind of meeting talking about this it becomes very obvious what those meetings are about when you think about it and right the idea that oh the government must be against this because it flies in the face of something that they can regulate that in fact they're completely behind it right so one part of the government is nervous because oh how are people going to pay taxes well it's against the law to not pay your taxes whether you make money through bitcoin or, or not so that's that's an issue that that probably will be regulated at some point or certainly will but look, there's another side of the government which is very much interested in avoiding all of the basic problems of paper money. Mm -hmm. um, and now, uh, you know, so so I could go on and on, like what are the problems with paper money? But in a nutshell, that's several reasons why we're heading in this direction. And I didn't mention any blockchain. I didn't talk I know, about cryptography. I know you didn't even use any of the any of the phraseology, and I no. didn't hear the word fork once. Yeah, no, no, no forking. No, no. But in and essence, by the way, I've what read, I gather, I, I've read the code of Bitcoin. I'm a technologist. From, yeah, I'm from, sure that uh, you could speak on all of this at length, right? But I appreciate the fact that, like, in order for us to uh, the average person to understand it, we need to find a new vernacular around it. But yeah, the essence of like how I sort of understand it and see it, and please tell me if and when I'm wrong. I probably will be wrong. Is that First of all, there's a distinction between investment, like an investment perspective and a perspective of using this as a currency. And now everyone with this crazy spike is looking at Bitcoin as an investment, not as a fungible currency that you're going to be using to exchange all the time. Everyone wants to get in and sit on this thing and see how high it's going to go. Yeah, I think the speculation hype is too big. But um, 
There's three things I can say about that, uh, again, without mentioning technology. So Coinbase is the largest place where people buy a bit. You could you could sign up for Coinbase in a day and buy yourself a Bitcoin. Um, and like 100,000 new signups a day. Yeah, there's 100,000 like new signups a day, exactly. And every one of them are buying some Bitcoin. So they sign up and they're like, oh, this is fun. And they're going to buy a Bitcoin. So so there's more demand than supply. The supply is fixed on Bitcoin. It can't There can't be new Bitcoins made. And... Uh, uh, there's a nuance to that, but we don't have to get into it. And um, there's also 16 millionaires on the planet. So they're all looking at this spike, every one of the 16 million, and uh, currently in circulation, there happens to be about 16 million Bitcoins out there, maybe even a little bit less right now. And uh, a large chunk of those coins are already owned. So if every single millionaire says to themselves, Oh, I'm just going to buy one Bitcoin and put it away and never look at it. That's the entire. That's that's more than the entire supply that exists. That's why mm-hmm. the price keeps going up because every millionaire is saying that some of them are buying more than trying to buy more than one Bitcoin, so the price goes up even more. That's why we had this kind of parabolic move all of a sudden. And so, where do you think this is gonna gonna go? Like, how does this play out in the short and long run? Well, in the short run, I think you're gonna. There's a lot of We've been talking about Bitcoin, but there are maybe like 900 cryptocurrencies out mm-hmm. there, and probably 890 of them are scams or useless. So they're all going to go to zero, and that's going to scare people a little bit. So that'll bring Bitcoin down and reduce demand for Bitcoin. So at some point, there'll be a lot of volatility and fluctuations. But the first thing I described, which was kind of how the history of money and how every industry is evolving and the need for a database currency, that is not going away. There's already $200 billion worth of cryptocurrencies that tells that should tell anybody this is not a fad 200 billion that's more than the internet was worth back in 1999 it's 200 billion is real money being put here and but if cryptocurrencies are really going to replace paper currencies if they really solve the problems of paper currencies you have to say well what's the demand for paper currencies there's 200 trillion dollars worth of paper currencies only 200 billion of cryptocurrencies the supply, the demand and supply are pretty much fixed. There's not going to be more demand for paper money, really. And there's not going to be more supply of that much more supply of cryptocurrencies. So the only thing that has to change in the equation is price. So eventually the price will move up on the 200 billion to match the demand for the 200 mm-hmm. trillion. So I do think we're in inning one or zero of a very long term investment process. But the current speculation, who knows? I think you. I think anybody should just buy and and not look at the price. Like, on a daily base, basis, I don't know what the price is of Bitcoin. I don't look at it. I don't know what the price is of anything because I just I'm playing the long game. And if you get stressed about short term trading, it's it's too stressful. I'm too I'm too old for that. I used to be a day trader, so I I know the stress of looking at price every day is too much for me. Right. So when somebody comes up to you, as I'm sure they every every single day they do, and say, James, what should I what you know should what should I, what should I do with this? Is your advice like, well, if you have some disposable income, you know, buy whatever Bitcoin you can afford to lose, and then just set it and forget it. Yeah, basically, uh, be willing to afford to to see a fifty or sixty percent downtown a uh, downturn. Um, but but play the long game. Bitcoin's probably going to be one of the winners in the cryptocurrency space. It's currently the winner, but it's probably going to be one of several. Um, in terms of other, you know, if somebody asked me, should I wait for the dip? I say you could wait for that, but that's not what I do. 
So psychologically, it's mm-hmm. very hard to wait for a dip if something, you know, I've seen people waiting for the dip since it was $2,000 and now it's $11,000. So they never got that dip and, you know, they missed out on that move. Then the next move is still happening. But um, if someone asked me about specific cryptocurrencies, uh, I, you know, I think if that's their first foray into this, they should learn a lot more because I, mm-hmm. I think there's lots of reasons for different cryptocurrencies, but you have to really study it. And I have things I, that's where I start to uh, sell packages and I have researchers that, that look into this stuff. But if somebody just wants exposure, Bitcoin and Ethereum are, are pretty good. Right, because if you get a bit, if you get a Coinbase account, you have Bitcoin, you have Ethereum, and then you have what Litecoin, Litecoin. is the third one. And so I just to... presume that those are the other two that that seem the most stable. Yeah, I mean, even though even there though, there's like a, still a lot of volatility, and there's coins that are out there to help reduce the volatility. There's there's lots of coins that are used to solve problems. So why is there a Canadian dollar and a U.S. dollar? Is because we have an artificial border that separates Canada from the U.S. But there's a reason. The, the reason why there's Bitcoin and Litecoin is there's Litecoin solves a problem that Bitcoin doesn't solve. So different cryptocurrencies mm-hmm. solve different problems. So there are like what I call problem borders. And uh, if you're looking at other cryptocurrencies, you kind of have to do the research. Is this pro- problem a big problem? Is it going? Is this coin so- solve that problem? Like uh, traceability, for example, would be one of those problems, right? Like, isn't one of them like less traceable than Bitcoin or yes. something like that? So, so anonymity. Um, so, so if I send you, if you and I do a transaction, nobody could see our names, but they could see the size of the transaction and the time. Now, that's anonymous for most but it's not anonymous for others. Like maybe it might not be anonymous for a government, a big government transaction. So there are other cryptocurrencies that are great for that, that are more anonymous than Bitcoin, even though Bitcoin's very anonymous. Uh-huh. So it's this cra- you just like these crazy customized currencies that are yeah. very specific to like niche needs. Yeah, and, and some not so niche. Like uh, think about the combination of Dropbox and Google Drive that's like a $20 billion online storage market and then throw AWS in there, it might be a $40 billion online storage market. What if there's a coin that was not centralized with one company, but decentralized? Uh, now you have decentralized storage. So, so the government can't find mm. your, the things you're storing as opposed to Google, which has a, a regular relationship with the government, mm-hmm. um, revealing you know accounts and so on. So maybe, who knows? And uh, that could be a potential coin developed to solve a $40 billion problem. So that's like an example of right. a problem that, that may or may not need solving. Right. Is there a specific place, like other than like following your stuff and subscribing to your emails, like where you can direct people who just want to get the basic sort of lay down on like how this all works? Yeah. I mean, I think there's one book that I, I haven't read it, but I heard it's pretty good called Mastering Bitcoin by Andreas something or other. Uh, Antonopoulos, that guy. Yeah, yeah, like that I've, guy. I've tried to listen to a couple of interviews with him, but he quickly goes too far off the reservation for me. I think- Like I'm th- fairly internet savvy and I'm like, not only does it get too technical, like I'm not interested in that part of it. I think, it I think a lot applicable. of those guys are trying to impress each other with their technological technology understanding of this when it really should be all couched in terms of usability. How are, how are we going to really use this? I don't care about the 100,000 lines of code. Um, another uh, blog that I like is Nick Zabo, S-C-A-B-O, and he was also on Tim Ferriss's podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's very smart. Um, here's what I want. Like, here's what I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. I just want, like, 
I want a guy like you who like knows it all and is like super into it that I can just go to and go, here's here's the money that I can afford right now. Like you just you take this and you like a brokerage. Like so, you just do what you think is best. So so mm-hmm. I got that I got that offer like a group of bankers. One guy was the CFO of a major like top five investment bank. Another guy was a big hedge fund investor. Uh, and they basically said, here's a hundred million. Can you invest this in cryptocurrencies? And I you know, you reach a point in life, which, you know, I know you've reached where you're like, you just don't want to do what you don't want to do. Uh-huh. It doesn't matter the money involved. And I just did not want to do it. So instead of doing that, I wrote about it instead. So people could, you don't have to be the three people with, you know, a hundred million dollars and they're just going to get wealthier and they're already wealthy. Uh-huh. It could be anybody and start to understand what's happening. I think it's very interesting philosophically. So I was happy to just write about this on a larger scale. But I, I think if you, I honestly don't know which link of mine leads to what, but uh, I have, I did a six video class with four people we just took off the street and I mm-hmm. taught them the basics up to opening an account and buying a Bitcoin. Um, and then I have, I, I wrote a book, which I think I give out for free somewhere called Cryptocurrencies 101, but I don't have it on Amazon. I just wanted to give it to mm-hmm. people who subscribe to something, but I honestly don't know where I give away these things. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation, a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. This is what I want to get into next is like, you're creating so much content. Like I said, like I get multiple emails from you, like every single day, you're putting up three podcasts a week. Like, I don't know how that's humanly possible. Well, now I'm I'm, I'm gathering a little bit, being in the studio and meeting your producer, et cetera. Um, you're writing every single day. 
you've really, you know, grown this enterprise into in, into quite something, and 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 you've traveled a lot of roads since we last spoke. Yeah. Um, a lot of changes in your personal life. You're inching towards fifty. Um, are you still doing the like? I stay in different Airbnbs all the time. And so, I, so 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 right after uh, we last saw each other, uh, I made this big move where. I I had I was renting two different places at the same time the place you were in and I had a mm-hmm. place upstate near my kids and the place upstate near my kids was a full house with let's call it 40 years worth of belongings that I had been carrying around forever and uh so I said to a friend of mine um I'm going to go away for a week I want you to go to both these places and you know you can either throw everything away give everything away keep anything for yourself or sell anything and keep the money for yourself. And I thought it would take her a day because nobody realizes actually how much stuff mm-hmm. they have. Like you, you can't even believe the amount of stuff that you own physically. And um, it took her a week with a big truck with all her family helping her and she did it. I had, I, I had no belongings left. I had gone to California with a carry-on bag and when I came back from California, all I owned was what was in that carry-on bag. Did you go through all your stuff beforehand to weed no, out? Zero. Or you were just like, I'm walking away completely. Yeah. So, so, so right, photo well, albums of like my kids, photo photographs. albums of my parents. Uh, uh, all, I had a huge comic book collection. I had artwork. I had, uh, you know, whoever was the original animator of, just as an example, uh, cause there's a lot more mundane examples, but like whoever was the original animator of Snow White, I had the original, um, sketches of all the dwarfs. Uh, and so I had stuff like that, but then also just, you don't realize how many dishes you have, how many sheets you have, how many towels and jackets and underwear and, uh, so much and, and, you know, books, uh, and then the only time she called, I said, don't call me at all during the week. The only time she called me was, uh, and this tags back to our original discussion, she said, "Are you, your diploma is so nicely framed. Are you, you worked hard for that. Are you sure you want me to throw this out? And I said, yeah, no one, I have never once used that diploma <laughs> no for anything. For you could just burn that. And she got rid of everything. And uh, I had nothing left at all. And I had, I had maybe two outfits in my carry-on bag and a computer, uh, like a laptop and a phone. And that was it. Um, that was all I had. And I had a toothpaste and toothbrush. And uh, uh, that's all I had for for a while. And then I decided, okay, I'm not going to rent another place. Because... All right, but hold on. I'm going to do what you do and, and interrupt you for a okay. second because I don't want to breeze past this too quickly. Certainly something had to be going on with you emotionally to lead you to make you know, what many would ca- would probably contend is like a rash decision. Maybe yeah. you haven't thought about this, James. Um, what was going on with you at that time that led you to act in that way? All right, so I'm going to answer this. In a way that I haven't really answered before, because a lot of people have asked me this, and uh, first I'll ca- I'll couch this with a lot of people said, "Oh, it must have felt so freeing, and you must have felt so happy with this." Uh, and the answer is no, not not really. Um, but being a minimalist has some benefits, but there's also some downsides to to, to minimalism, and I, I don't really consider myself an ismist. 
Um, like I didn't really consider this a minimalist thing. I considered this a convenience thing. So I was going through something very uh, uh, kind of traumatic in my life. And, uh, and I know that sounds leading, like I should say what it was, but out of fairness to other people, I would rather not say what it was, but it was traumatic to me. And, uh, and I didn't really know how to live a normal life. So I've always lived, when I first moved to the city, I moved in with a roommate. And then when I had some money, I moved into the Chelsea Hotel on 23rd Street. Right. So I never had my own place. And then eventually I got married. I still didn't move out of the Chelsea Hotel until about three months later, I finally moved in with my wife. You were married for three months, you're still living in the Chelsea Hotel. Yeah. Maybe t- maybe just paint a picture of the Chelsea Hotel for people that aren't familiar with what that means. So so it it was <laughs> it's a beautiful beautiful building. Now for the first time in uh, 130 years they kind of tore apart the insides and they're making condos. They they've ruined it essentially. It's kind of a shame. So yeah, it's a shame because I mean every artist ever and writer that you could think musician um, has lived there at right. some point. Patty Smith. Yeah, Patty Robert Smith. Maperthorpe. Yeah, uh, Lou, Dylan Lou, Thomas. Did Lou Reed live there? Uh, I believe he did, yeah. Uh, Janis Joplin, mm-hmm. Andy, uh, I think Andy Warhol had, not not him, but people working with him. Uh, uh, I mean, the movie I shot, Andy Warhol, a lot of it takes place, takes in, place the, in the Chelsea Hotel. hotel. Yeah. Uh, when I was living there in the 90s, Ethan Hawke lived there, and a lot of, uh, Madonna wrote the book Sex there, and um, uh I don't know. A lot of people, a lot, a lot of people live there, and there was also, it was the one place where just every room something strange was happening on the other side of uh-huh. the door. And but it's also kind of a dump too, right? Oh, it's awful. Like yeah. one time, my kids were visiting me. This is so after I got married and then divorced uh, from my first wife. I had two children, and they would. I moved back into the Chelsea Hotel, uh, and my two daughters were visiting me, and. I had to make sure like they didn't see one time we were walking down there was like a condom on the staircase right. like a used condom and I had to tell the people downstairs all oh, this because there was also a lot of <laughs> prostitutes and drug dealers living uh-huh. there and but there was art on every wall people like artists would pay their rent in art and uh, it's just all these crazy stories there but consequently I had never you know and then I got remarried and moved in with my wife then and um, uh, got divorced again. And I don't know, I never, I had never lived in my own apartment ever in my life. And so I had no idea really how to function with belongings on my own. And so part of it was- Like these are just the trappings of being married. You accumulate all of this stuff because it's sort of like, that's just what you're supposed to do. Yeah, and it's finally like, when I got married the first time, finally my parents were like, okay, here, take all of this. It's like all your stuff from whenever. From childhood, right. Yeah, and then you just build up stuff. You buy more and more things and you never throw things away and you keep paperwork and, and you store it. And um, so I had all of these, literally it was, I think seven or eight days worth of truckloads back and forth worth of items. And so then I I had I didn't I didn't want to rent these places anymore, but I didn't know how to rent a place on my own. I didn't want know what to do with all my belongings. I didn't want to just store them for for what purpose, for no purpose. So I decided to get rid of everything just to make my life easier. And then I didn't want to rent either. In in New York City it's very hard to rent a place. I needed last time I rented I needed six even when I was renting with someone I was married 
to. I had I needed six recommendation letters. I needed a letter from my lawyer, a letter from my accountant. I've never had a I've never had a credit card in my life. I've always used debit cards. So my credit score was weird. So landlords would want to know what is up here. You never you have this weird credit score because mm-hmm. I've never had any debt at all. That's amazing as somebody who comes from finance that you never had a credit card. Yeah, well, um, I, I. So the the minimalist sort of uh, spirit was living within you earlier. Probably. Well, I think part of it though is a, a certain dysfunctionality on my part. I think there's some part of me where I can't. I'm not very. I mean, a lot of people are not very good at paperwork, but they do it anyway. And I just would not. I can't. I can't do it at all. It's uh-huh. almost like I'm dyslexic with paperwork. And so I figured. Uh, I, 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 it was very hard to rent a place on my own, so I figured, okay, I'm not going to do it because I, ca- I can't, I can't get approved. I have no credit score. I need all these, and I don't have a job, right? So I have multiple businesses, <laughs> and I haven't had a job in uh-huh. 20 years. Like no one, no one knows what to make of you, right? They're never going to rent you an apartment, in right? Because I don't. There's not like one thing I do either. I can't say, oh, I'm a writer. Here's the, my checks from Amazon. There's no one thing I, I do, and. Uh, so so I said, okay, I'm just gonna keep this carry-on bag, and if I do Airbnbs, I never have to buy furniture or anything. And so I would just Airbnb from place to place. So I Airbnb'd all over, I don't know, all over the country, but really mostly all over. People mm-hmm. said, oh, did you travel all over the world? No, I just like living you in New York in, City. You were just like moving around New York with one bag, and then that famous article got written about this experience for the New York Times. Like yeah. this huge profile, this is like, Picture, this incredible photo of you like getting out of a cab with like your duffel bag, the only thing you own. Yeah. And that must have caused like, you know, that, that must have impacted your life to have that story written, you know, oh, in yeah. that way. It was unbelievable. Like, I don't know, famous movie producers were calling like around the clock. They wanted to do like a TV series around what was happening to me. Then uh, reality producers, like well-known reality producers were calling and wanted to do a reality series around it. Uh, uh, you know, didn't want to do any of that stuff. Hmm? Did anything happen with any of that, or you didn't want to do any of that? Uh, you know, I think things are kind of still in progress. Uh I'm still kind of deciding, but uh, uh, I think the main thing is is that this is why I like doing rather than. I think you can't write until you do. Mm-hmm. So now I was able to write about this experience as opposed to writing about minimalism when I had six truckloads worth of stuff. How can you write about minimalism? Uh, I was writing, instead of writing about an ism, I was just writing about what happened, what was happening to me and what was going on in my head. And then people could decide for themselves, is this an interesting life? It's more like just, I'm not giving any advice, I'm just telling my story and then people were following that. Mm-hmm. So it was a way to do an experiment in a certain way of living that most people don't live and to kind of document it along the way. So I did that for about a year and a half solidly where I I had already been doing the Airbnb thing, but um, the minimalist part was about a a year and a half. And it's only in the past month, I finally rented an apartment. Oh, you did? Yeah, and so I'm 49 years old and it's the first time in my life I've rented an apartment completely on my own and furnished it completely on my own without without a wife or a girlfriend. <laughs> That's amazing. So what was the biggest thing? Like what was the, what you... was the age you were when you first rented an apartment and furnished it? Uh, when I furnished By it? By yourself. Like never. 
I don't think I ever did that. Well, I spent my, I spent my twenties just partying and like broke and blowing all my money. But were you living then, like in an apartment or? Yeah, but most of the time I was in an apartment that had almost no furniture in it, with like a, right. with like a mattress on the floor, and that was like it, right? Yeah. So it, frankly, like it wasn't, it wasn't until I got married. Um, or just moved in with Julie and she already had a bunch of furniture that we started to kind of build around that. And to this day, like I share all of your fear of paperwork. I mean, had that not happened, like I still very well could be like, you know, sleeping on the floor somewhere. So so, so what happened to me was I wanted to, for a very sp- specific reason, I wanted to move into one particular area of Manhattan and there were no Airbnbs available. Uh-huh. Uh, for whatever reason, I don't know why. I think Airbnb is cracking down a little bit on Manhattan uh, and also uh, the Upper West Side of, of New York. There were less people airbnb for whatever reason. And I talked to a friend of mine and she said, you know what, stop the Airbnb thing already. And she's always giving me good advice. And she said, listen, you're, you're 49, you're going to be 50. People are gonna, like women you meet, the kind of woman you wanna meet uh, to spend the rest of your life with potentially might, it's probably gonna think it's a little creepy what you're doing and that you're not putting down roots anywhere and you're not willing to take on this kind of, you know, a reasonable task for an adult to take on, which is to rent a place and to furnish it and just get get a nice apartment and, and furnish it. So uh-huh. I like, her. snap out of it already. You had your fun. Right, exactly. <laughs> which is sort of what she said. And and um uh and she's been on my podcast actually she's, uh, made some movies written great some great novels but uh, uh, I did it so I, I just finished the process of furnishing my uh-huh. own place probably in the past week well congratulations thank James. you and it's and it's great I have to say I feel this enormous wave that I've never felt before of being stable that I've felt in the past week that's interesting because the experiment was really about can you be stable, um, irrespective of externalities, really, right? It's sort of an exploration of that. Like, yeah. what is your relationship to to the material world? Yeah, and I guess, I guess I liked, I wanted to think I had no relationship to it, which was really true for a long period of time. I did have no actual relationship to it, but maybe now I go, I, I found a building that I loved, just like I loved the Chelsea Hotel, and I found an apartment I, I liked within that building. And now I have my own stuff in there. And it's not much, it's not many things. It's still minimalist, but it's just the things I needed. And now when I get home, like this is my, I'm renting, but it mm-hmm. feels like my place. And what is the biggest thing that you took away from that experience that year and a half? What did you learn? I did learn that I really didn't need anything. Like there was nothing I actually needed. But I also learned too that everyone kept saying, oh, you must be really happy. It must be really freeing. And I'm like, no, there are things that I miss and things that I'm sad I no longer have. And and they're like, oh, have you tried doing this to cheer yourself up? Like they give me ideas. Like they once they once people hear the word sad, they want to cheer you up. And I'm like, no, it's fine that I miss these things. Like mm. I'm a human being, and I miss not having these photos. I miss not having uh, my, you know. Uh, Dr. McCoy doll on my next to my computer uh, from the '70s, and I missed you know not having certain things from my childhood or from my kids' childhood or whatever. So there was a certain melancholy that I became comfortable with and realized that that's not has nothing to do with whether you have well happiness has nothing to do with well being. 
So you could still have well-being and occasionally feel sad and melancholy mm-hmm. and miss things. Mm-hmm. So and maybe also, appreciate the things I missed. The the purge allows you to figure out which things have hold value for you, right? Like when you when you're just sitting on a whole bunch of stuff, it all seems the same. Yeah, right? like like you know what I really realized that's interesting. A lot of people always say. Uh, a lot of people ask, do you like books better than you like reading a Kindle? And people have an opinion on it. And they have an opinion for reasons. But I really have realized recently, oh, because I would only read on a Kindle for a year and a half. I would never buy a book mm-hmm. because that would have to, I'd have to replace. My rule was I had, if I bought something, I had to replace something in the bag. And so there was no room for What a, a was book. in the bag? Two, two or three outfits, tops, uh-huh. computer, and a phone. And, and the Toothpaste and toothbrush, I don't really count, but that was, you know, in Air, every Airbnb had towels. Right. So, um, uh, but I couldn't buy any books because there was nothing to, no room for it. But now I'm buying books again and it's, the reading experience is really different with a with a, a, a physical book than a Kindle. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not saying one is better than the other. It depends on the type of book, but for certain types of fiction books, I value the physical book reading experience much, much more. It's like 10 times better. It's interesting that you're focusing on books. Like it's not about some big ticket expensive thing that you miss, that you bought, that costs a lot of money. It's like, a, it's simple things. Yeah, I will never buy again some big ticket item. That I I got over any need for that at all. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, you know, I don't, there's, I can't even imagine what I would buy if I had and like if someone said, oh, here's an extra X amount of dollars, you have to buy something with it. I can't imagine what I would buy with it right now. Right, right, right. It does, it is enticing. Like there is a uh, like a sense of, of like exhilarating freedom that I would imagine comes with that. But there's probably also the kind of uh, day-to-day pressures. Like if your Airbnb is running out, then you got to figure out another one or you have nowhere to sleep that night. Like there's probably some other things that like people don't realize that get tossed aside in the conversation around it. Yeah. And you usually you can avoid that um, by planning in advance. But there were there were a couple of times I had that situation where I, it, it was down to the wire. <laughs> so and I and I no longer. Yeah, but you could always go to a hotel. But, but I no longer want to go to a rule, hotel. Though. That's your rule. You can't do that. I, I didn't want to stay in a hotel. Uh-huh. I wanted to stay in Airbnbs because uh, an Airbnb, you actually live in a real place. Like in a hotel, there's like one bed and a bathroom. You know, I I, I felt like back to being eighteen, like a dorm room again. Mm-hmm. So even a nice hotel is still like one room. With a bed, a bed, and then a bathroom. So I didn't, you know. And I have two kids. So if they were, they couldn't visit me in a hotel. Um, I needed to have like multiple rooms and right. places where they felt comfortable visiting. And now being on the other side of that experience, like, what do you think will be, you know, the thing that you take away from it long term, like in terms of how it reframes your, you know, relationship with consumerism? I think I'll never again buy items so like you've, I, all, you've kind of famously said like nobody should buy a house right things like yeah, that yeah i'll never buy a house um but i one thing i do value is i love convenience i will buy i will buy experience so i'll buy experiences and i'll buy convenience so uh, which is very different than buying items so for instance with airbnbs depending on where my podcast studio was that I was using the most, I would Airbnb as close as possible to that podcast studio. Right. So I'd have the convenience of walking there instead of taking a cab there. Or um, uh, I, I all the time will 
do something that will seem frivolous to others. But because I'm not, I don't have a car, I don't have two cars, I don't have all these other things that people have, I'm able to do things that will get me conveniently from one place to the other, you know, in as convenient as manner as possible. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. I'm trying to think of other other examples. I don't know. I just think most people, they're willing to buy more things than I'm willing to buy. Mm-hmm. Like now I'm pretty much set on what I own. Mm-hmm. Well, we're we're in the grips of this mass delusion that you know the answer to uh, you know our problems can be found in that next purchase, right? And when we don't find it, we think, well, when the new Tesla comes out or the new MacBook or the new iPhone, then that will be the answer, right? And right. we persist in this delusion to our grave. And and you know you get um, like I remember reading the biography of of Elon Musk, and I was getting excited. Oh my God, this Tesla sounds great, but I can't. I can't, I can't do it. It doesn't fit in the bag. So <laughs> I, so, so automatically, like I had just had a reason. And now I still have kind of the same philosophy of like, I have this bag, so I'm not going to buy like an extra coat or an extra uh, clothing item that mm-hmm. I don't need, or uh, I don't drive, so I'm not going to buy cars, but I will, I will pay for convenience. So if I need to, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't even know what an example is. Oh, if I want to go see a, a comedian that I love, I'll buy the second row seats in the middle. Mm-hmm. Because when you ha- buy an experience, it's an experience. You, yeah. you're looking forward to it. You have the experience. You think about it afterwards. Like I still think about a year ago going to my favorite comedian's stand-up special, and I can't even remember any item I bought a year ago. Right. Have you seen the minimalism documentary? I haven't. No, I yeah, heard it's good. Yeah, it's it's really well done. Yeah, and you I know I've emailed back and forth with those guys, uh-huh. and I'm, um, but I I also I think I rebelled a little against the word because I didn't really consider. You didn't my, want to get pigeonholed into that. Yeah, and also I considered myself more incompetent than minimalist, <laughs> so <laughs> so that was kind of part of the reason I have to admit that for what I did was that I just was not really functional in that way. Uh-huh. I'm very highly functional in other ways, uh-huh. but not in that way. Yeah, that's really funny. Well, let's let's talk about the comedy thing. You, you've made this um, move into doing stand up. How how many nights a week? You're doing this a couple nights a week now, right? Yeah, I'm doing it. Like this week, I'll do it five nights, uh, and I'll do anywhere between like three and six nights. Like a slow week will be three weeks, three uh-huh. three nights for me. So, I mean, this is nuts because you know, look, you you write on all these different subject matters, but I can't imagine there's too many uh, you know stand up comedians who have written like a crazy number of books like you have who can also speak intelligently and eloquently about blockchain, <laughs> cryptocurrency, like you're a man of many talents, James. So what motivated you? I mean, I know you're funny. Like, I'm glad that you're doing stand-up. I would love to see you do this. But like, what inspired you to like take this leap into this world? Well, two things. One is, I mean, I've always loved comedy. And like, I would even... In the years, in the past six or seven years, I even wrote quite a bit about comedians and what I've learned from them. Clearly, and, they've inspired a lot of what you do. Yeah, and and I and I love it. And I I would go in the '90s. I would go to the Aspen Comedy Festival every year, where all the best comedians in the world would gather and do their performances. And um, and I I would I would go to I would go out to comedy clubs like every night back then before I was married. But I was always afraid to do it. I was scared to death to do stand up. And so one time I was doing a podcast and it was above a comedy club and the owner of the comedy club saw me doing the podcast. He's like, oh, this guy's funny. 
he, I'll ask it. So he asked me to do five minutes of comedy, you know, a week later. Uh-huh. And so I did it and I was scared did you write to write new material? Like you just spent oh, the whole week writing five minutes? Yeah, I spent the whole week writing five minutes and because I had no material at all. And, um, th- and then he wrote me a week later. He's like, come back again, do it again. And so I started going back and more and more. I would do 10 minutes, I would do 15 minutes. Um, uh, I would start doing other clubs around the city. I got like obsessed with it because I wasn't good. I was really, it was a different skill set than I had ever encountered before. It was like the hardest thing I had ever encountered. And what's the difference between being funny in your writing and getting up on stage and being funny? So, so there's th- there's first off, I could do public speaking and make people laugh the entire time, right? Or almost the entire time. That did not translate to stand-up comedy at all. Stand-up comedy, on the other hand, translates a hundred. Like my public speaking has gone up tenfold mm. in ability because of stand-up comedy. But public speaking, if I try to do what I do to make people laugh in public speaking, is not funny at all in stand-up comedy. It's, it's no. Why? You cannot why bring is it. that? It's it's just it's just it's just a different skill set because humor is not even the most important skill of stand-up comedy. I mean, if you want to laugh, there's plenty of YouTube videos that are of cats that are funnier than any stand-up comic. But like stand-up comedy, there's maybe 20 or 30 separate micro skills that all have to be mastered to be really good. So you have to master likability, you have to master crowd, understanding the crowd. There's There's so many different types of crowds that have to be kind of cataloged almost and you do something different with each crowd. And now with public speaking, you don't you think a little bit about the crowd, but not so much. If you're speaking at a an, a, a health conference, the crowd already knows you. Mm. It's a rich role. They're going to come to see you speak. They're in the audience because they want to see you speak. They already like you, and it's already the crowd you're comfortable with. When you so when I go on stage with stand up, nobody nobody knows who I am, so they don't like me yet. They have to figure out if they're going to like me, and I don't know. Is there more women than men in the crowd? Is this crowd from New York? Is this crowd from the Midwest? Is this crowd mostly tourists? There's so many different, is this crowd old, is it young? Is this crowd gonna handle vulgarity or zero vulgarity? Uh, There's so many things you have to analyze microsecond by microsecond with that crowd. And at the same time, think about your likability, which is much more important than the humor. Mm. Um, You have to think about how you're moving around the stage, how you're holding the mic, and then the jokes themselves is it a persona how are you is there a punchline is there are there reversals are you telling a story is there a misdirection there's so many different skills how, how do you how could you talk to the crowd if you see somebody uh, for instance here's a great example which i didn't know at first but now i know a little better uh what if a crowd is always laughing at the punchlines, but they're not laughing at the mini punchlines that happen in between, mm. in the middle of a joke? A joke is usually several punchlines and then a main punchline. That I didn't. What, what's going on? The last crowd laughed at every little mini punchline. This crowd's only laugh. They like me, but they're only laughing at the main punchline. Well, it might be late at night and they're drunk and they're tired, but they like you, so they're laughing at the main punchline, but they're too tired to laugh throughout. So what do you do? There's techniques for what you do in that situation, which will never occur in public speaking, that you would never do it in, in a talk. Like what? Uh, let's say the crowd's got 100 people in it, or 50, 50 to 100 people. You'll point directly to someone who's who's in the crowd, who's already laughing, and you'll make a statement about them. 
So maybe you'll begin the next joke. Instead of saying it, you'll make a statement about a person. Like, you know, you know you're about to commit suicide, right? And uh, then they start laughing because they already were laughing. But now the rest of the crowd has suddenly just perked up because they don't want to be, they're already t- they don't want to be called on <laughs> like, so they're now going to focus for the mm-hmm. remaining 6 or 7 minutes and they're going to pay much more attention because they they really do not want you to call on them and talk to them and or ask them a question and so it's cuz it's scary uh, to speak at all in front of a crowd right. for most people so they're going to be on alert and they're going to be nicer and they're going to laugh at everything after that so that's how you juice up the energy of a, of a smallish tired crowd but that's one one hundredth of what you have to learn about crowds yeah and so are you learning this i mean obviously through experience and repetition but do you, or do you have do you have like mentors you have comedians that are like trying to teach you this stuff yeah so the most important thing is repetition because you have to gain the experience because you have to know what the problem is i would never have known that was a problem until I experienced it right. over and over. Like, why some crowds doing this and some crowds not doing this, but they still seem to like me. Um, and then sometimes, why do some crowds not like me and some crowds do? What's what's different? And But then also very important, I think, to kind of hack the 10,000 hours, you can hack maybe a good four or 5,000 of it by just building a community of really good comedians. Like I always make sure I go up on a lineup of professionals and not like open mics because you want to be able to build friendships mm-hmm. with professional comedians. And this is what a podcast is great for too. I can get any comedian on my podcast and ask, and I'll just ask them all the problems I've been having on my own sets. And I think back to the comedians I had on before I was doing comedy to now, it's a complete, I, my questions are completely different because I really did not understand at all well, what they were doing. Well, you have context now. Yeah. yeah. And there's so much context. I've only been doing it like a year now. I've, it's so hard. I don't know how long I, I'll I have to. I feel like I've hacked some of the ten thousand hours, but there's still so much to learn. But now the questions I ask are very direct, very determined. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're different than, you know, how did you get over these obstacles and all that kind of thing. It's like, what do you do in this situation when the heckler says this? What if the heckler is a drunk woman, or what if um, the MC does this, or what if? Uh, the mic goes out in the middle of your set or all these things. What if, what if right. the check is being passed around while it's your set? It's called the check spot. What if you're uh-huh. doing the check spot? And how do you, how do you deal with it? Because people are talking. And, and then how did, you do, how did you really do that joke? Because now I see there's nuances to how mm-hmm. they do mm-hmm. these jokes and mm-hmm. call back to other jokes. And It's an art form. You know, I've, I've, I've heard many a podcast with many a comedian and, and a consistent thing that you'll hear is, even the most experienced, the most successful, who are really dedicated stand-ups will say, like, they don't like to take, you know, a week or two off. They start to feel rusty. Like, they want to be going up, like, all the time, all the time, all the time, and they're always learning. It's the same thing as writing. You really can't take a week off from writing or else you'll have to write a few days in a row to get back the muscle. Well, with comedy, I've never, I haven't taken a week off since I've started, but even taking a few days off, you get rusty. There's lots of ways you get rusty. If you have one thing to be wary of, which is not the same case with public speaking, if you have a really good set, like they're laughing the entire time, that's dangerous also because the next time you're up, you want to replay that one and you can't, you have to be in the moment. You have to play your set mm-hmm. for this t- a totally new experience. Mm-hmm. And so, anyway, I'm still at an infant stage in it, 
but I'm trying to hack it as much as possible. I, I watch a lot of comedy. I talk to a lot of professionals at, at the highest level. Um, I ask a million questions. I'm working on my material all the time. Uh, so so and part of it is learning how to learn, like breaking down. Like some of these comedians talk to me and I'm so analytical about their own sets. They're like, whoa, I never even thought of my own set that way because I'm really trying to analyze it. I'm trying to understand the meta language of learning this incredibly difficult skill. Mm -hmm. So it's similar to like when I was learning how to play chess very well. But I would say this is harder than chess because it has to do with real people too. So you have to, chess maybe has 20 micro skills you have to learn. And this has maybe 50 to 100. Uh I think it's, I think it's cool and, and, and courageous to like step out into a world that is so foreign and so scary, you know, at, at 49 years old and try something totally new. And, you know, as it's a writer, horrifying. as a curious mind, like, obviously, you, you know, this is, I'm sure, giving you tons of stuff to write about. Um, but I feel like, you know, if there is a theme to your work, it is this willingness, this this commitment to your own vulnerability and to sharing that vulnerability. And I think stand-up is like the ultimate in being vulnerable, you know, getting up on stage and exposing yourself on, on that level. And um, and so it, it, I guess it seems natural that this would be the evolution of, of what you're doing. But yeah, yeah, and I think also, again, like I look back to, I used to write about comedians or, co- or comedy, and now I really see the difference between writing and doing. Now, if I write about it, mm. it's a much different flavor and texture than before when I wrote about it. And I'm too new at it to write about it like a, like any with any kind of expertise at all, but I'm able to write about my failures in it, which is much the same way I used to write about my failure at money, um, you know, my, my times I've gone broke and stuff. You can't keep writing about going broke 3,000 articles in a row. <laughs> yeah. So I had to find- It was the worst day of my life. <laughs> I get a lot I, of emails that start like that. I know. So I had- <laughs> I have to. I had to find new categories, like throwing all my things out and trying that, and now stand up. So the whole reason I, I, one of the reasons I rent an apartment in this one area is, I decide I'm going to use my business expertise in stand up. So after I'd been doing it for about six months, I bought part of the stand up club that I perform the most at. <laughs> and so then for convenience, I rent. Now they have to let you go up. Yeah, well, well, no, I, I always tell them. If I'm bad, do not let me up. Uh-huh. And okay. uh, uh, and I'm pretty sure they listen to me because there are sometimes I've asked, can I go up on this night? And they're like, no, no, this is like, you know, these uh-huh. people are going up. You don't quite fit that right. lineup. But maybe less likely to get bumped when like Chris Rock shows up. Oh, if Chris Rock shows up, I'm bumping myself. Mm. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but but I have performed next to some really great comedians, and that's always an, a great experience. Because like going up after T.J. Miller, it's like, oh my God, how do that's I cool. go up after him? Or going up after Judah Friedlander, who was on Thirty Rock. He has such an insane style. How do I go up after him? And that's part of the challenge. It's it's never fun before going up because it's it's scary as hell. Yeah. And what one time I wanted to tighten up, I felt like I was using too many words to say, to get to the laugh. So one time I did, I went on a subway and every stop I switched cars and started doing stand up on the subway. Oh, I think you wrote about this. Yeah, you? I wrote about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I'm willing to write about it. It's That's getting so material terrifying. to write about. I, would, I could never do that. Just I like, thought, like hearing, hearing the fact that you did it makes me get uncomfortable. I, I got on the subway and someone was there to videotape it with a camera from the, like, so it wouldn't be so obvious. And I said, we just wasted our time. We sh- let's just leave. 
And then I was thinking, you know, just put on the camera. Let's just see what I do. And then I, I like ten seconds later, I started doing it. And it was, and then I switched cars each stop. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Like, you try something a little bit different each time. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. something a little. And it wasn't good. Like I, like I had nothing really prepared, and uh, I just wanted to see if I could do it. And I was able to to do it, and it was scary. But you're always flexing your muscles. Uh, and putting yourself in these uncomfortable, you know, situations to just get over that fear, right? Like I feel like that you're 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 in the habit of that, which is a really positive, good habit to be in. But it's it's really what I found is is that the skills, even if I never did stand up again from this moment on, the skills just in this past year, I've seen it now in public speaking. I've seen myself use it in writing. I've seen myself use it on television. Uh, it's it translates to so many. I've seen myself use it in meetings. It translates to so many other things that I didn't expect it to translate to. Mm-hmm. I would. This is the part where I say like maybe I should try that, but I'm so not funny that that would just be a disaster. I, it might. You know, first off, you're an extremely likable person, right? You know, you're you you have likability, which is an important. I can skill. get laughs when I do the public speaking, but it's exactly what you said. It's like you know, these people. There's a context for it. They know me. They they want to see me. It's a different thing. Well, if, when you try telling a joke like at home with, with like a classic joke, do people laugh? Not my daughters. They just roll their eyes and tell me to leave. Uh, okay, so that's <laughs> <laughs> you got You got to get that yeah. ability up. No, I know. So, I know. I know. Well, maybe I'll work on it. You should. It's 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 an interesting experience. The the, the concept Main, just because it's so scary. The concept right? of controlling not controlling is the wrong word, but understanding a crowd, that concept by itself. Like Dave Chappelle, very funny guy, but not everything he does is funny. Sometimes it's just interesting what he says. And then he ha- and then now you notice he'll signal to the crowd they need to laugh. Like he'll start laughing and he'll hit his knee with the mic and he'll bend over laughing. And then suddenly the crowd's like, oh, that was interesting. I'm gonna laugh at that. He teaches the crowd how to laugh mm-hmm. at his material mm-hmm. until he has a funny joke and then mm-hmm. they laugh naturally. But it's just interesting to see, like sometimes humor is not the most, saying interesting things is more important. Right, right, right. And being a good storyteller. Storytelling like, I, is really hard in comedy. Yeah. Yeah, it's really hard. That's more the purview of like the alt comedy world. Yeah, which 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 ultimately you need to be funny. Like yeah. and and storytelling is often not funny till the end, uh, till the you know and uh, you don't have enough time. Yeah, and st- like mm. traditional stand up, you have to get people to laugh much more than traditional mm. storytelling. So where are you taking all this? Like what what are you working towards here? Like what's next? Like what's the you know, what does James Altucher look like? next year at this time? I don't know, but I I kind of, I really do take it one at a time. I'm really trying to be good at this incredibly difficult skill because I do think it translates to everything else I'm doing. Like it's improving my ability to learn anything else. But then putting my business hat on, I was able to buy this club, which by the way is not a good investment. I would not recommend that type of investment to anybody. But then I thought to myself, well, I have a stage and, an, and a lineup of comedians and an audience and a bar every night. And mm-hmm. so what I've started doing is I shot my first half hour special. So I came up with an idea that's that's different from anything that you would see on Netflix, but it involves comedians and it involves being on a stage. And I just finished shooting it and it's almost done being edited. And then I'm gonna, I'm creating a library of content because now I have 
all these resources. Oh, wow, that's amazing. So yeah. that would be, you probably don't want to say what it is specifically, yeah, but like some kind of, was it like an interview thing? So, no, interview no, what I did was, um, I, you always see, and you turn on Netflix, you turn, you see a comedian, a comedy. it's just like an hour of them yeah, or a half hour of them. Specials. Yeah, just doing a, jokes. So what I did was, I did a night in the life of an MC. So an MC has to start off with her 15 minutes and then she has to manage the energy of the crowd for two hours while eight different comedians go up. And she has to do crowd work the entire time, like, where are you from? And then she has to make jokes on that and, and get the crowd energized between each comedian. So it's very difficult. And so we do a night in this one great MC's life and so it's all her comedy. And then we had segments from each comedian that went up, including some world-famous comedians. Mm -hmm. And then she interviews the comedians in between sets, and we pull snippets from four or five of those, including, again, some, some world-famous uh, comedians. And it's just it's a, a, a great special in that it's funny from a lot of different people, and but it's also this kind of inside comedy, like how this person struggled to become on this TV show and then get right. these stand-up specials and then still doing his... 10 or 15 minutes in this club. And so that's that's the first special Right, through shot. a unique point of view. Yeah. And then the next one we're doing is um, comics that specializes in insulting the audience, and then we're going to fill the whole audience with Navy SEALs. So it's uh -huh. going to be comics versus SEALs. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's a pretty good idea. Yeah. So just all these things that I've never uh -huh. been thought of before, I get to do. That's cool. And why are you not doing like live podcasts in your in the club? Oh, I'm going to start doing that you too. Should, you should definitely be doing yeah. that, right? So, so my podcast producer, we just visited the club because we have studios upstairs. We just visited the club last week. We're going to do the whole the whole thing. Oh, that's awesome. So yeah, and we're doing events there where people interview me on the stage and then it leads into the comedy show. Fantastic, so, man. Yeah. Cool. All right, well, we got to wrap this up. So good talking to you, man. Yeah, Rich, Thank once again, so thanks so much. Yeah, great to talk to you. Let's do it again sometime soon. Yeah. Oh, and next time you're in New York, come up to the club. I definitely will. I had no idea that all of this was going on. So yeah. I come here regularly. I will definitely um, let you know next time I'm here because I would love to see that. That would be really cool. Yeah, it'd be fun. Awesome. So jamesaltzger.com, choose yourself among your 250 books that you've written. Yeah. Uh, what else, where else, at James Altucher, everywhere on the internet. Yeah, They're yeah. Easy to find, right? Oh, if you, if you Google, I want to die on Google, I'm either the second or third result. <laughs> <laughs> you could put it's that on your gravestone. Yeah. All right. And if somebody wants to come and see you do stand up, is there, is there a is like how do they do that? Well, it's at Stand Up New York, uh, which is on 78th and Broadway. That's the I'm, I go all over town. Actually, next week I'm going to Chicago, the Laugh Factory. I'm doing 20 minutes there. But uh, uh, Stand Up New York is where I usually do like three times a week at least, and that's on 78th and Broadway. And you can you I'm usually not on the schedule. I don't want to be for various reasons, but if you call them up, they'll tell you if I'm going up mm. that night. All right. Awesome, man. Can't wait to see it. Yeah. I, I look forward to it. All right, man. Great talking to you. All right. We did it. It's over. It's done. How do you feel about it? What do you think? Do me a favor. Let James know how you felt about the conversation by hitting him up on Twitter at JayAltucher and be sure to check out the show notes at richroll.com for plenty of additional links and resources to expand your experience of this conversation beyond the earbuds. Once again, Plant Power Way Italia is now available for pre-order, so reserve your copy today. And if you would like to support my work, the best thing you can do is subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you enjoy 
this content. It only takes a second on your part, but it really does help out with the show's visibility and extending reach and growing the audience, which in turn allows me to make the show better and get the best guests and all that kind of good stuff. You can also support the show on Patreon by going to richroll.com forward slash donate. If you need help with your diet and nutrition, I suggest checking out our meal planner, thousands of custom tailored plant-based recipes, grocery lists, even grocery delivery in almost every U.S. metropolitan area right at your fingertips. It's this incredibly potent, powerful toolbox that has everything you need to eat the way that you deserve. And it's just $1.90 a week when you sign up for a year. So to learn more, go to meals.richroll.com or simply click on meal planner on the top menu at richroll.com. I want to thank everybody who helped put on the show today. Jason Camiolo for audio engineering, production, interstitial music, uh, help with the show notes and the WordPress page. Sean Patterson for help on graphics and theme music, as always, by Analemma. Thanks for the love, you guys. I appreciate it. See you back here soon. Until then, make it great. Do well. Serve others. Be kind to yourself. Peace, plants. Namaste. Yeah.